Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the education podcast for busy GPs. My name's Tim Coe. And I'm Sean Stevens. And our guest on the show is Dr. Craig Berg again. Welcome back, Craig. Thanks very much to both of you. I hope you've had a, had a run since we last spoke. <laughs> uh, Craig, you're, yes. uh, you work in aged care and uh, it's, it's your main area of interest in general practice. Yeah. Tell us a bit about your, your practice in aged care. Okay. So yeah, I, I mainly work in residential aged care, so I visit nursing homes. I've got about uh, 300 nursing home patients spread over about seven different facilities, and, and that takes up probably two-thirds to 75% of my week. Uh, and I, I probably came into that... Um, having initially been a medical registrar with an interest in geriatrics and palliative care and I, uh, I decided to give general practice a go to see how that worked and found that for me personally doing uh, or practicing aged care and palliative care I think works better in general practice than it does as a, a specialist so, so I've continued that for the last uh, 15 years or so. And what do you enjoy about working with older patients? I, I think there are a few different things I think um, uh, part of it is the patients themselves. Again, they're a very appreciative group of people from uh, uh, from those older generations, and uh, have still have a lot of respect for the doctor. And, and I guess sometimes that can balance with some of the pa- young patients you see in your general practice. And then in terms of uh, the medicine, I I like complex, uh, interesting medicine, and I also like doing a lot of stuff myself. And one advantage in nursing home patients is that unlike our community patients, they often don't want to go and see specialists and so they're often happy for you to manage a lot of stuff yourself so it keeps a broad range of skills going. And then finally palliative care is a a particular interest of mine and so uh, obviously there's a lot of end of life care in nursing homes, Uh, it's probably the hospice of of today and the future. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, So you visit a lot of uh, residential care facilities, how can we as GPs improve the happiness of our patients in these facilities? Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting question because I guess a lot of what we do doesn't necessarily improve their happiness. It, it, it fixes medical problems and, and maybe organises plans for, uh, for advanced care and the end of their life. I, I think most of the quality of their life comes either from time spent with their family or their happiness, from time spent from, with their family or from activities in the facility. And so I, I think as much as anything else, we can just advocate on their behalf in facilities for, for activities uh, um, uh, visits, outings, all those sorts of things. Again, in terms of happiness of what I do, probably the most happiness I get patients is just turning up every week and it's, sometimes it's the highlight of their day just to see somebody who spends 15 minutes with them. Um, so, yeah, the, the medicine doesn't necessarily improve their happiness, sadly. You know, this is, this is just a thought. I often visit aged care facilities and they're often, you know, if there's a piano in the aged care facility and they're playing music from the, well, the person's, you know, from the... 1930s or whatever. Yep. I wonder, you know, when we're old, whether they'll be playing rap music in yeah. aged care facilities. In my case, it'll be 80s and, and uh, easy listening. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I I think the same thing when we get uh, 80s pop playing in uh, 40 or 50 years. <laughs> Probably yes. Craig, um, in when you sort of look at the way you divert, sort of you know, spend your time, yep. do you find that you're spending it mostly? Uh, on acute needs of patients or is it sort of chronic disease planning because I reckon there's probably a lot of people who would think about doing what you're doing but I think when we dip our toes in nursing home work a lot of it's driven just by the acute needs so you'll get the call can you see the person with the urinary tract infection and so forth yeah and I guess when it's done well just like normal general practice it's a good mix of both Uh, and a lot of that depends on your time and workload so at times if 
if you're short of time, then you're just dealing with the acute stuff. And probably similarly, if, if you've only got a handful of patients, then you know, you're not really visiting much except for after, after surgery hours, so you just deal with the acute stuff. In a, in a perfect world, you have a, a reasonable cohort of patients. So say for instance, 20 to 30 patients in one facility, you can then get, go in for a half day or a couple of hour session every week and you can deal with the four or five patients who might have an acute issue and then you can spend some time with a few of the other patients to look at uh, complex disease management, advanced care planning, speaking with their families, those sort of things. So th that's where it works perfectly. Uh, and again, it's, it's often a matter of finding the balance. One of the problems is obviously there's usually a shortage of general practitioners providing care. So sometimes you're so busy, you, you spend more time than you'd like just looking after acute problems. And how do you, so in that regard, say you're looking after chronic patients, how do you, and you say you, you know you need Mrs. Smith's family need to see you and, and Mrs. Jones's family, Mr. Jones's family need to see you, how do you sort of make that all happen while you're there? Do you just say, look, I'm going to be at the facility from 10 to 10.30 and everyone just needs to arrive around me? Generally, yes. I think one advantage is, is real consistency. Again, I know it's it's another reason why it's good to have that dedicated half day or, or multiple half days so that you can tell families from the start, I'm there every Wednesday morning between 8 and 11. Uh, so, you know, when, when you want to see me for each year or every six months or if you think something's going wrong, they know I'm there at that time. And then a week in advance, they can let the nurses know or let me know. Uh, so yes, although obviously if it's an acute palliative situation or a decision-making situation, I'll change my schedule and, and come out. If it's just for routine stuff, yeah, I, I, I do tend to make people go around me, but I make it clear well in advance when I'm going to be there. Mm. Okay, Craig, a lot of GPs are reluctant to work in aged care. Uh, why do you think this happens and what can we do to change it? I think there are a few reasons it happens. One is there's not a huge amount of exposure to residential aged care, both in medical school and in GP registrar time. Uh, and that's something that's a little hard to change. I know there's there's some change certainly here in Perth with more medical students going out to um, nursing homes, partly I think because there's more students and, and they need to go somewhere. And in fact, nursing homes are a great source of medicine. Uh, and similarly, registrars, again, it's often hard for them to, to see nursing home patients. I was very fortunate as a, a basic trainee to get given a cohort of 25 patients for my six months there and told just to look after them, and I found that fantastic. So a, again, I think there's a lack of experience and therefore a little bit of a fear. It, it does seem easier to sit behind the desk and, um, uh, and have people come to you. But again, there's a lot of benefits of getting out there and being in a team environment and uh, and seeing people out in the nursing home, I certainly enjoy that. Certainly, um, some of the feedback I've had um, from my registrars who've done it is the difficulty is not so much in dealing with the patient, but dealing with the family. Do you have any um, good tips about how to manage um, families and the issues that arise? Yeah, I, I think most of it is being proactive, and uh, I guess you very quickly identify who are going to be the challenging families to deal with, and human nature is they're the ones you tend to avoid. And so I think you need to very consciously be, make them the ones that you spend more time with. Generally, a lot of the difficulties are either with unrealistic, unrealistic expectations uh, of what can be provided in care, and then, again, unrealistic expectations in terms of palliative care uh, or, or end-of-life decision-making. And, and you can't move someone's opinions in those regards quickly. So again, those people, in a perfect world, I try and have regular meetings with them over a period of time so that they gradually move. 
Um, and again, I guess the other thing is just not to take things personally and, and to um, just appreciate that you're going to gradually be chipping away and there are lots of other factors involved in the reasons why they, uh, why they feel that way and it's not generally about you. Mm. Okay, thanks. That's good advice. So this question, Craig, for the registrars out there, um, this is the classic exam <laughs> question. You know, you, you get a call from the nursing home, they've got someone who's become acutely confused... Uh, what are your steps in managing someone acutely confused in residential care? Well, probably I do the things that they say to do in the textbooks, which is is really to take it step by step. So to first look for a cause. Again, generally acute confusion does have a clear cause. There are people with, with subacute and more chronic issues, behavioural issues of dementia, which can be a bit more challenging. But for acute confusion, there's usually a clear cause, classically something like a bladder infection, but infections, pain drugs, environmental factors. Um, and so really you need to go step by step and look through those things. Uh, I guess the the request from nursing homes is often to put someone on medication straight away. And again, the, the textbooks are also correct in that the medications don't work particularly well and tend to be pretty side effect heavy. So we try and avoid them where we can. And, and again, often it's a matter of helping the, the staff through. And, and if they feel like you, you sort of making progress and doing things step by step then they're generally happy it's it's if you just tell them to do nothing and put up with it that they get really upset so if you check their urine start them on some antibiotics look for causes put them on some analgesia speak to the family usually as that progresses the acute agitation goes away uh, having said that there there are always times that you need to use medications um, it's not a perfect situation but it, it's not a perfect world I guess and if the alternative is is losing their tenure at a facility or being rushed off to emergency purely because they're calling out then sometimes it, it is better to use a low dose of a medication be that a low dose of a benzo or a low dose of a, an antipsychotic to, to calm them down uh, but again it's certainly I, I think the more experienced I've got, the less often I use those things, but I probably use them quite a bit more in the first two or three years I was working in aged care than I do now. Uh, again, often feeling a bit pressured by staff, probably. Mm. And look, last question, Craig, a bit of one from left field. You know, say you've got a patient who is looking to go into residential care, you know, a nursing home facility. What should we? What should patients be looking for in a, in a good residential care facility? Because they often look at the wrong. It's a bit like a hospital. I and mean, I've got a, a patient who who went to a hospital recently. And said, "Doctor, I just went had the most fantastic experience in hospital. The hospital you sent me to has a subway in in the actual <laughs> dining hall. It's the best hospital I've ever been to." You, know, you kind of get the feeling people don't know what they're getting uh, in the back end. Definitely, definitely. I think that there's certainly that trend with the changing in funding arrangements so that there are places where you, people with a lot of assets pay a million dollars for their bond and have a, a beautiful place with an art gallery and, uh, you know, drinks in the afternoon. But that doesn't provide any extra funding for care and, and often those places aren't particularly well set up for, for care for people with challenging behaviours. Uh, and so, again, a, a lot of it's more about, uh, I guess, how happy people there look Um uh, talking to staff, consistency of staff. Again, I think the, the biggest things for me are really good facilities are, are places that have a low uh, temporary or agency staff rate. Uh, it makes a massive difference to have carers who've been working there for 10 or 15 years. And if you can see that or work that out, that makes a difference. I think, unfortunately, uh, the not-for-profits tend to provide a much better level of care than the for-profits. I guess it just makes sense that... Uh, they've got the money more to spend on the place rather than having to take something off the top as a profit. 
so and, and yes, often the older, less attract physically attractive buildings uh, are ones where there have been the same staff there for many years. So again, I guess not to be necessarily lured by a new attractive place. And certainly the the older generation, the Second World War generation, often don't really care that much about really beautiful surroundings, or I found even about shared rooms. Often if they came from boarding school or army backgrounds, they're quite happy with that. It may well change with the baby boomer generation, who I think will start to expect a lot of a higher level of, of physical um, you know, attractiveness. But again, th those people who are at the moment 85 plus, those things probably don't matter to them so much as their families. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? You know, the, your, your perspective on what good value is and, and what people want. Yes, yeah. Mm. Great, that's been fascinating. Thanks for uh, taking the time to talk to us and uh, have a great day. Thanks for joining the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Craig.